From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Ukrainian-American in Boulder sends supplies to Ukrainian soldiers. Sometimes, though, he wishes he could fight alongside them. I almost feel like jumping on the plane and going there and doing my part. And then I also have to remind myself of the family that I have here and perhaps the impact that I could do by knowing how to buy things in the United States and how to raise money and how to ship them to Ukraine. I could probably save more lives by doing that. This is not the first time he and his wife have sprung into action to help their native country, but they do face new obstacles. Then abortion rights groups express dismay at Governor Jared Polis after his latest appearance on this program. And train versus bike, the curious history of the iron horse race in Durango. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Ukrainian forces are short on certain supplies, like flak jackets and medical kits. So a couple in Boulder has stepped up to help. And it's not the first time. Victoria Olinik and Andrei Zakutayev run Sunflower Seeds Ukraine, named for the national symbol of their native country. To date, they've provided more than 450 medical kits and dozens of pieces of tactical gear. By the way, you'll hear their four-month-old son in the background. Victoria, Andrei, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here today. As we sit down together, news has broken of the first war crimes trial related to the Russian invasion. A 21-year-old Russian soldier has pled guilty to shooting a 62-year-old man. The man's widow was in the courtroom in Kiev. Uh, I wonder if that news has reached both of you and how it has been to watch this latest phase of the war unfold. Yes, absolutely. We've been staying on top of the news at the same time, trying to focus on being <laughs> being useful. But it's been shock after shock. And uh, in terms of um, war crimes, it's great to see that the people who committed the crimes are being punished. But we know these war crimes are happening all over. So it's not that much of a shock with this particular soldier being found guilty or being in court. Yeah, it's no. just heartbreaking that we also know that we probably, at this point in the war, we know about a very small percentage of those war crimes, and they'll be unfolding and unfolding, I think, in the days, months, and possibly years to come. Andre, do you still have family in Ukraine, and how are they doing, if so? We do. Uh, our immediate family, our parents are in Western Ukraine, where it's considered to be safe. And that means, you know, there's an airstrike uh, every now and then and uh, alarm <laughs> pretty much every day. Mm. Uh, so I guess it's as good as it gets these days. We also have a lot of extended family all over Ukraine in the Kyiv region, for example. Uh, one of my aunts are, uh, has spent months pretty much in isolation under Russian occupation and has survived there and finally... <laughs> was able to came out a couple of weeks ago on the 
on the connection again. So we know that she is uh, she is alive. We also have close uh, friends who have relatives have been evacuated from Mariupol, which is a city that has been on the news recently a lot. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, and also have relatives who are um, defending Ukraine in the front lines. So they are actually part of the forces. So let's talk about um, Sunflower Seeds' biggest win since the invasion, and and perhaps your biggest setback. So, Andre, do you want to start with a victory for your organization? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Uh, the biggest victory so far has been the consistency in the rhythm that we've been able to achieve in providing tactical medical aid to the front lines of the defenders. Not just doing it once or twice, but doing it consistently with uh, learning all the bottlenecks of the logistics process and figuring out all the problems that, and trying to avoid those problems of logistics of delivery next time. I would say that's probably the biggest thing. And what sorts of equipment has that been, by the way? These are mostly individual first aid kits or IFACs, as, they, as they're being called. And these include tactical medical equipment such as tourniquets, uh, emergency compression bandages, homostatic agents to stop the blood loss, uh, chest seals in case you are shot in the, in the chest, uh, those kinds of things. And so the point here is that there are many organizations doing humanitarian aid relief. This is direct aid to those on the front lines. As you've said, that includes some of your own family. Victoria, what's been the biggest setback so far? One of the biggest, biggest setbacks uh, has been shortage of supplies, such as supplies of medical aid within uh, the days of the war starting. Tactical medical aid was very difficult to find in Europe. Now it's also becoming difficult to find in the United States. Like initially, we were able to buy things on Amazon and have it delivered quickly. And now we have to find small, small stores in the country that have some online presence, online shops and from them so that itself just finding it uh, working with them takes more time add to that that now even most of the small stores don't have any more stock available and we have to contact the big suppliers pretty much the manufacturers of this equipment and get in line uh, to uh, pre-order things like one month in advance so you have to plan everything very carefully for what we're going to ship in one month from now already today i have to say there's just a, l- a little bit of joy that enters our conversation when I hear your four-month-old. And <laughs> I imagine that um, a child right now is a source of some hope. But it, it sounds like uh, perhaps some supply chain issues that are hitting you as they have so many um, around the globe, really. So I understand this isn't the first time you've had to set up a system to send supplies to Ukraine. So Victoria, talk just briefly about how you got started in 2014, which was a time of some tumult as well? Well, in 2014, it was uh, a similar situation. Russia attacked Ukraine. Uh, We are far away. We wanted to do something to help and not just watch the news in desperation. So we still have strong connections uh, back home with uh, friends and volunteers and organizations that uh, have a lot of impact. That's right. So we uh, reached out to our friends uh, and colleagues back in, in Ukraine who are uh, part of the local scouting organization called PLUS. Uh, at that time, uh, we did kind of peer-to-peer help, peer-to-peer connections. We uh, sent uh, you know quantities of dozens, let's say, of these individual first aid kits or their components to Ukraine. It was much easier back then because only 
uh, a part of Ukraine was in a state of the war. Planes were flying to Ukraine, so we could ship things uh, directly there. Hmm. Now the scale of what we are doing is much bigger. So we are doing hundreds rather than dozens of these individual first aid kits. Uh, but also the logistics is much more challenging because we have to send everything through Poland. Through Poland. So I hear that you are dealing with larger quantities but more difficult inroads to Ukraine. Do you think you've saved lives, Victoria? Yes, absolutely. Um, I hope I hope so. <laughs> I do not have statistics to tell you how many of the medical kits we've sent have been used, but we surely hope that it helps save lives on the front lines because we do know that many of those people do not have medical proper medical aid kits, do not have proper uh, protective gear. And every time we send these individual first aid kits at the one at a time or, or you know, now 100 at a time, we do hope that they never get used. Hmm. I, I can right? under, yeah, I can understand that. Do I have it right as well that you've sent tactical gear like bulletproof vests, Andre? That's right. That, that was another perhaps surprising thing that we learned during this campaign, that even the most advanced uh, and well-equipped Brigades and military units uh, that are really at the hot zone in the front lines do not have protective gear such as bulletproof vests. So uh, we partner with military unit called 95th Brigade. They are some of the paratroopers, some of the most advanced paratroopers that are working in Ukraine to help them get some very advanced bulletproof vests that are much lighter than what, what they currently have to help them. I wonder if you're at all torn. Like, I can imagine being grateful to be safe in the United States and yet perhaps yearning to be close to those fighting in Ukraine. Does that capture it, do you think, Victoria? Do you feel torn about this? Yes, absolutely. It's difficult. It's difficult to be away. It's also difficult to figure out how to live a normal life here, or at least attempt to, because uh, we are surrounded by people who are, of course, empathizing and impacted, but still, the life is going on in this country, so we have to... <laughs> We have to partake in that. And at the same time, uh, we are grateful to be able to help. And we are trying to find the opportunities that are accessible to us to help Ukraine and people who are still there. Yeah. One thing I would add to that, that as, as a male person, maybe I feel even more torn than, than statistically on average people would do because all male in Ukraine are liable for military defense and, you know, I almost feel like jumping on the plane and going there and doing doing my part. And then I also have to remind myself of the family that I have here and perhaps the impact that I could do by knowing how to buy things in the United States and how to raise money and how to ship them to Ukraine. I could probably save more lives by doing that than jumping on a plane, getting a gun in Ukraine and going to the front line. Hmm. It sounds like you've given that a lot of thought. Well, I wonder if there are needs being expressed in Ukraine beyond the kits and the vests that you'd like to meet? Do you think that this could grow into something else, uh, Victoria? Yes, the needs are absolutely overwhelming, like humanitarian needs. People need support with housing, even finding housing, paying for housing. People need diapers, uh, food, like in the areas that are occupied or that were occupied recently, it's difficult to get access to food and just basic life supplies and medications. Hospitals were destroyed. There is no access to medical care and medical supplies. Is that a need that you think you can meet, Andre? Yes, and we do have humanitarian projects. For example, for Easter's, we partner again with this plus organization in Ukraine to bake special Ukrainian Easter cakes. 
uh, in Western Ukraine where they are and then deliver them to the uh, liberated parts of the Kyiv and Jatomir region yeah. where Russian forces have been drawn out from there by Eastern. Mm. Maybe two other needs that I'll add to, to the list here besides humanitarian things, one that we can address and the other one that we cannot. One that we can address are various kinds of tactical gadgets and gear that make the uh, lives of soldiers easier, but they're not given out. Things like tactical goggles and uh, knee pads and, you know, small things that really just make sure that they're not miserable. Huh. Rain ponchos, for example. That's what we do. And, you know, we pivoted recently towards that direction as well. One thing that I wish we could help, but I have no idea how to help is gasoline and the fuel. Uh, all processing plants in Ukraine have been destroyed. By Russian airstrike, there's a huge shortage of fuel. It's only given out to military units and some agricultural companies, or really uh, also you know paramedics and firefighters and so on. Only the, the most essential people, and really there is no way for any volunteers, for example, that work there with us to to get fuel to fuel their cars and go. Uh, it's getting much more difficult to deliver supplies to the front lines because of that. Hmm. I can imagine that it's painful to see a need and not necessarily know how to meet it. Um, thanks to both of you for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yes, uh, I really appreciate your uh, invitation and uh, an ability to share what we do with the listeners of the CPR. Andrei Zakatayev and Victoria Olinik of Boulder run Sunflower Seeds Ukraine. Learn more about their mission at sunflowerseedsukraine.org. And we'll be right back with why Colorado's pro-choice governor faces backlash from pro-choice groups. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krauss is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Earlier this week, I asked Governor Jared Polis whether he'd support removing a ban in Colorado's Constitution on state funding for abortion, which could mean state workers get the procedure covered under their health insurance policies. The governor said the question was hypothetical, then added, In general, the state doesn't cover elective procedures. But even if you look at like plastic surgery, there's reconstructive plastic surgery if you're in an accident. And then there's such thing as like a nose job if you want to look better. So I can't possibly get into what the state insurance plan covers. That's a negotiation we have. That comparison between nose jobs and abortions has drawn sharp criticism from progressive groups. And from our politics team, CPR's Benta Berkland is here. She's been covering the fallout. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And tell us about this sort of unified response. So uh, the statement came from groups like the ACLU of Colorado, Progress Now, Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. And they said in this statement, quote, bodily autonomy is a human right. And to compare it to a nose job does an extreme disservice to their movement. Uh, They said a nose job is a surgery without this history of 
being politicized, violence from opponents. And the statement also said Coloradans seek a leader that not only speaks up about protecting abortion, but a leader who will do anything in their power to remove any barriers that stand in the way. Now, the governor did sign a bill enshrining access to abortion in Colorado this year. You talked with some of the abortion rights activists who contributed to this statement. Why did they feel it was important to respond to Polis in such a public way? I think as we're aware, the nation is at a critical moment when it appears the U.S. Supreme Court is on the cusp of overturning Roe v. Wade. That decision could make Colorado one of the few states in a huge swath of this country and this region that provides abortion access. So even though Democrats passed and Polis did sign, as you mentioned, a law that enshrines the right to abortion access into state law, activists are trying to do more and they want to build support for more. And they plan to put the question to voters in two years to enshrine this access into the state constitution. They also want to remove an existing ban that's in the state constitution on state funding for abortions. It's been there since 1985. And I talked about all of this with Karen Middleton. She's the president of Cobalt. That's a grassroots organization. They advocate for abortion access and reproductive rights. She says she thinks the topic of abortion veers from the larger messages Polis is pushing during his re-election campaign for November. And groups like Cobalt are trying to remind Polis that for progressive voters, abortion is a big issue, too. Fundamentally, I believe he supports abortion rights. And he has been a longtime advocate and has been involved in this for years I think the nature of the way the interviews were characterized, you know, one, he has a message. He's trying to save people money. He's going into an election. I mean, I I want to be clear that the governor emphasized his support for legal abortion multiple times in our conversation this week. But when I asked him about whether he'd specifically protect abortion in the state constitution, uh, here's what he said. If you put something similar uh, in the Constitution that uh, that made sure that women wouldn't be put in jail and doctors wouldn't be put in jail uh, for any pregnancies. Of course, I'd be inclined to support it, but I'd want to see what that was and what you're doing first and that there weren't any unintended consequences. What do the activists you talk with have to say about that? I mean, he's somewhat noncommittal there about a constitutional amendment. The reaction I heard from one of them, Dusty Gule. She's the head of the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, is that she was disappointed and frustrated, but not necessarily surprised. Why? She said she thinks too often Democratic politicians sit on the laurels and are like, OK, I'm pro-choice. I checked that box. She said the governor needs to see that abortion is a family issue. It's an economic issue. But. What I heard from her and others is that they feel the governor is very focused on staying on his re-election message, which... Saving people money. Yes. We hear that over and over again. Yes. And it's about the economy and abortion is not front and center. And, And she said she feels like he's looking at the issue in a lot of ways through a political lens. Reading your story, Benta, I'm seeing a tension because... Uh, Polis, again, was noncommittal when I asked him about a constitutional amendment to protect abortion, although he said he was inclined towards it. But the folks you talked with said that his administration was actually pushing them to put something just like that on the ballot this year. 
Yes, that's right. That started with conversations about the Reproductive Health Equity Act. So that was the bill this spring that cemented legal abortion in state law. Polis supported that. He signed it. But I talked to two advocates who said that when they met with him about that bill, this was before it was introduced in January, Mm -hmm. they were trying to figure out how soon to introduce it. And he was more interested in putting the idea to voters this fall. Put it on the ballot, put it in the Constitution. But why? Why that path? The governor's office declined to comment, but Grule describes her take on the conversation and said the push for a constitutional amendment from the governor and some of his senior staff, she viewed it as more about the potential impact that could have on the midterm election. Yeah, that was sort of the inference, right? Like, this issue brings progressive voters out to vote. I'm like, yeah, and don't forget we're the ones who elected you in office to actually do your job as a governor and or legislator. So let's do that. And then let's figure out where we can build and add. As I mentioned, abortion rights activists do want to put something on the ballot in 2024. They said they didn't have time to raise money and get a campaign together for this November. Mm. And keep in mind, any changes to the state constitution require 55 percent of the vote to pass. Does it surprise you, Benta, to hear this level of criticism from abortion rights supporters of Jared Polis? Yes and no. Given what's at stake on all sides of the reproductive rights issue, how passionate people are about it, I wasn't surprised. But it's also unusual. We don't usually see this type of public criticism of the governor from people in his own party. He is more libertarian and diverges from progressives on certain issues. But it's still not that public typically. And Democrats still back him on plenty of issues, and they're still supporting his reelection. Here's Gurule. We definitely need to keep him in office. Any of the Republican options would be devastating to everything that we do. We're actively working to ensure that he knows that, you know, we're still going to hold him accountable. Benta, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland can hear my most recent interview with Governor Jared Polis at CPR.org and in the Colorado Matters podcast. We are back in the next half hour on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been decades since anyone's seen the roses bloom. Roses planted by Japanese-American prisoners at Colorado's Camp Amachi. But that may soon change. They're witness roses. They were there, and they remain to this day to tell that story of someone's hope, of someone's skill. This summer, the flowers are likely to reveal their colors. Hear the story at CPR.org and in the Colorado Public Radio app. The pandemic has been a disaster for nursing homes and their residents. Estimates show nearly 400 facilities nationwide could close by the end of the year. That includes the Cripple Creek Care Center in Teller County, which has struggled to maintain staffing. It is set to close in June. KRCC's Abigail Beckman reports. This is Hi. Abigail. Hi. And, and Marjorie's willing to talk to you. Marjorie Schmidt spends her days playing cards and bingo. She's lived at the Cripple Creek Care Center for the past three years. Her closest family is in Denver, a few hours away. You win a lot of bingo? Quite a bit. Uh, enough. enough. More than enough. <laughs> I don't. I just want to pass time. So... 
Come June, she'll be passing time at a different nursing home in Canyon City, about an hour south of where she is now. But the move isn't by choice or for lack of care. Schmidt, along with the 32 other residents at Cripple Creek Care Center, is moving because her home is closing down. I will never jeopardize the care that we give to our residents. That's Lawrence Cowan, an administrator at the care center. And with the staffing numbers that have decreased to the level that they have, that absolutely was a possibility had this decision not been made. Cowan has also been working nights as a nurse at the facility. Over the past two years, he says he's lost close to 40 percent of his employees. And citing the rural location and the draw of higher-paying travel nursing jobs, he hasn't been able to replace them. That's even with increased recruiting efforts and a plan with the local high school to get kids into nursing training. Gowan says it all wasn't enough. So we're just working to kind of downsize the facility and, and find the best home for our residents. Many residents aren't actually local. They're here because it's a high-ranking, hands-on facility in a beautiful place. The Cripple Creek Care Center consistently gets high marks from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. It's also been listed in the top 10 percent of health facilities in the U.S. for the past five years, as reported by U.S. News and World Report. I think that's one of the things that we've been very proud of, is that we might not be new, we might not be fancy, but we're small and we care. Kelly Nelson is the assistant director of nurses there. She says staff numbers really started to drop about six months into the pandemic. And then, of course, the information about the mandates came down as far as the vaccines, and then that took another toll. (laughs) Nelson largely blames the shortage on the COVID-19 vaccine mandates from the federal government. The care center did offer religious and medical waivers, but she says some staff still left. Numbers from the state show just over 3 percent of workers at skilled nursing facilities throughout Colorado left their jobs due to the vaccine mandate. On top of that, the CMS is proposing a cut to home Medicare funding to the tune of $320 million. Nelson says that would be a big hit to providers with bottom lines already stretched thin and especially to rural health care facilities. COVID didn't close this facility. I feel like the government created this situation, not necessarily the virus, not that that's not real and an issue, because it absolutely is. But for it to have gone as far as it's gone, I personally think I'd rather be done with nursing. And she's not alone. Research from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows the number of workers employed at nursing care and elder care facilities has continued to decline nationwide since early 2020, while other health sector jobs have nearly recovered. Stephanie Henrick is the social service director at the Cripple Creek Care Center. It's her job to find new homes for the people who live there, a difficult task as there's only one other skilled nursing facility in the entire county. Finding nursing homes that accept Medicaid or VA benefits is also hard, Henrick says, but not as hard as seeing people leave. Some of these residents have been here 25 years or more, and now they've got to go somewhere else and start all over with people they don't know. So we're sending letters with them, stating their likes, their dislikes, so maybe the facility they go to can deal with them better. Henrik and her co-workers worry about how the transition will affect the people they've grown to know and love. Administrator Lawrence Cowan and other staff members have worked to make the changes as smooth as possible, visiting the new facilities with the residents and helping them meet staff. Because they're our family. In 35 years, I've not ever been through this, and I don't ever want to again. 
None of the staff I spoke with have made plans for what they'll do next. For now, the focus is on finding comfortable homes for the residents. Abigail Beckman, KRCC News. Coming up, what started as a challenge between two brothers in Durango 50 years ago lives on in a world-famous bike race. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Forces are mustering for a fight to keep U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs. Former President Trump said in his final days in office that it'll be moving to Alabama. Colorado's congressional delegation says not so fast. The process was incredibly flawed, untransparent, and didn't consider the most important factors. U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs. Should it stay or should it go? The details in this past Monday's Colorado Matters, wherever you listen to podcasts. It started with a challenge between two brothers in Durango, one on a bike, the other on a train. That was half a century ago, and the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic this year will include more than 3,000 cyclists pedaling over mountain passes as they race against the Durango and Silverton Narrow Gauge Railroad. Race director Gage Sippy is on the line ahead of the Memorial Day weekend event. Hi, Gage. Good morning. How did these brothers dream up a contest between a steam-belching train and a flimsy 10-speed? Well, especially in the early 1970s. But yes, um, both of them were adventurous. And as as noted, one worked for the train and the other one was a bit of an eccentric cyclist, the brother Tom. And he kept seeing that train go by and he had been riding up into the high country on the highway anyways and thought he could probably beat that darn train to Silverton. (laughs) And they made the bet. And as he went by, uh, the train went by, Tom jumped on his bike. And when the train arrived in Silverton, Tom was already standing there uh, to greet the train. So he he accomplished it first round. So Tom on the bike beat Jim on the train. Correct. Uh Aha. It becomes an official race the next year, right? It does. And so uh, the first year of, yes, so so how the it kind of transpired was the brothers shared their, their challenge with a local businessman who also owned a bicycle shop. His name was Ed Zink. And back then, Durango wasn't the thriving metropolis it is now. And so it seemed like a good, a good idea for some sort of special event. So they got started back in 1972 as a way to kick off the first train to Silverton Memorial Day weekend, the start of the summer. And uh, the rest, they say, is history 50 years later. Did they keep competing, the brothers? Uh, yes, absolutely. And so Tom was involved in it for many of the early years. And, and Jim was a member of the train crew for many years. They both have kind of since retired, but they are revisiting us for the 50th anniversary. And they're both going to be in the same role once again. Oh, that's so fun. How cool. Uh, The race sounds tough. 47 miles over two steep corkscrew passes on Highway 550. And yet, uh, each year, more and more riders want to do it. Is there a mystique? Yeah, Yeah, here. Absolutely. And so it's become a bit of a tradition for, for road bikers and cyclists, you know, in our region and really across the country. This year, we'll have riders from 43 states and five countries, and that's fairly customary for us. And it ranges from professional-level athletes to kind of the first-timer weekend warrior, you know, people setting a goal for themselves to get in shape and things of that nature. So I think the strength of the event 
is the fact that amongst all of these participants, we have a very diverse level of fitness and enthusiasm and ability, but yet they all make their way over the hill. Is it tough on those first timers though? Goodness. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the professional racers can do this route in about two an hour, two hours and 15 minutes. And some of the first timers, it takes them right in the area of six. So that six hours. So that gives you an idea of the, the span. But, you know, we only have about 20 every year that don't make it the whole way. So our finish rate is extremely high. Hmm. Does the train ever win? You have, you know, 49 years of evidence here. It is one when we have canceled because of snowstorms, um, but it, it, it is never one because uh, it can beat those fastest riders. So it takes the train anywhere from three and a half to three hours and 45 minutes to get to Silverton from Durango. And the, like I said, the top end cyclists can do it in two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes. Okay. So the train at least beats some of the cyclists. Do they try to supercharge the train at all to, to get it to beat its own time? Well, while they would never admit to it, I've heard rumblings that maybe a little more coal gets thrown in the fire that day to get it up and over the hill. But, you know, it, it's a heavy piece of machinery, and I don't think it can modulate its speed a whole lot. But, yes, they still meet, they beat some of the participants that are taking place, but they have never rolled into town and beat the first rider. You have raced this race, correct? Correct. Yeah. Are there moments then when you are right up against the train like that? That must be such a thrilling feeling if you get it. Absolutely. So the train for the first 10 miles literally travels almost next to the road that you're on. And so you kind of get a feel right away if you are keeping up or going behind. And when and then, you know, it's kind of a flat section through our valley leaving town. And then we get into the hills and the train starts taking a different albeit a bit easier route to Silverton. It stays along the river, uh, the river valley, whereas the highway goes over the mountain passes. So the train never actually reaches the elevations that the bike riders do. So, so one could argue that the bike riders have an even harder route. And the train has it easy. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Gage Sippy. He's race director for the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, uh, whose 50th iteration takes place Memorial Day weekend. This is a race in which cyclists are up against a train. A legendary Durango rider named uh, Ned Overend has competed in every Iron Horse since 1982. I understand that he has a role in this kind of mystique. Uh, Is it true that racers get a thrill when they're passed by a man they call Deadly Nedley, (laughs) who's, I think, 66 this year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ned is by by far our greatest ambassador for the event as a cyclist. He did start competing in 82. He has won it numerous times. He has competed on the world stage in both mountain biking and road racing. He won the first ever mountain bike world championships in 1990. So he is a, he is a hero amongst all cyclists. But on our day at our event, there are people that are just thrilled when they get passed by Ned Overend because they feel like they are really being part of the event. It's the essence of the event. And yes, Ned is 66 years old, and I assure you, he will be in the mix in the pro men's race uh, you know, one week from now. 
against 20 year old riders and he will be right there swinging with them. He is by far one of our greatest riders at this event. Well, we caught up with Ned at a Durango dog park after his training ride to Silverton on a recent morning. He estimates that he's ridden Durango to Silverton about 500 times over the years. And we asked about how hard he will push for this 50th anniversary race. I go out for all of them. I, I don't have much trouble going all out. So I, I don't think I can go out go all out any more than I in this one than I have on the, the other ones. You know, I mean, that's, that's one thing that has helped me be successful as a racer, you know, is that uh, I will dig pretty deep to use whatever fitness I have. And uh, for sure, I'll, I'll do that again this year. Now, Gage, uh, until 1979, female racers weren't allowed to go past the Purgatory Ski Resort, 27 miles north of Durango. It was just thought that the passes were too difficult for them. Do a lot of women today ride the Iron Horse? Absolutely. So 30 for, 30% of our rider population are female. And, and interestingly enough, although Ned would not like me to say this, uh, the, the winningest rider in the Iron Horse is Mara Abbott from Boulder, Colorado. She's won the event six times. Oh. And so Ned's won it five. And, uh, but yes, we have a strong female participation in it. It almost seems laughable at this point that it, you know, it took that long. It took till 1979 for the females to go all the way, but by far they are right up there with some of our best times. And we have a large population of females. The race tops out on two 10,000 foot plus passes, Mollus and Cole Bank. That means, I guess, even in the end of May, the weather can be not just bad, but like downright terrible. Do you worry about snow? Absolutely. And we have had uh, many snow events through the years, and we have a lot of precautions in place on how we can contain people up on the passes if the weather turns nasty. And we, you know, it, it can be a 10 minute snowstorm or it can be a showstopper. And so, for instance, in 2018, it snowed 18 inches, uh, excuse me, in 2008, it snowed 18 inches on Colbank Pass. Well, that canceled the event altogether. But we've also had years where it snowed during the event, melted off, people keep going. So uh, weather is our biggest challenge each and every year. It's remarkable to me the harsh conditions people will willingly expose themselves to. It's not necessarily in my makeup, but I'm so glad it's a part of other people's experiences. Ned Overend believes the Iron Horse has been key to turning Durango into a cycling town. This race has affected a lot of people's lives for the better. You know, it's brought a lot of people into cycling. And uh, and I think they've become, if they don't become racers, they don't need to do that, but they become lifelong cyclists and it's healthier for them. And I think economically, it's really helped the community. Gage, before I get your thoughts on the role that this race has played in elevating the town, why do you call Ned the Pope of Silverton? Is that right? The Pope of Silverton? I, I say that because there there will be there will be a lot of people that finish the race or ride in Silverton on May twenty eighth, thousands of people. And there will be lots of other professional cyclists and notable individuals, but no one is as popular as Ned Overend in Silverton on Iron Horse Day. So most people get off the bike and they say, How did Ned do? 
because he is he is by far, as I've said before, the ambassador or the Pope of Silverton. The people whose hand, the person whose hand people want to shake. Okay, you you have witnessed Durango's cycling reputation abroad. What's this story in Italy before we go? Yeah, you know, last summer I had the uh, opportunity to go to Italy for the mountain bike world championships. Now, keep in mind, Durango hosted the first world mountain bike championships in 1990. So I just went to Val d'Isole, Italy this past summer, 2021, to the mountain bike world championships. And as I stood there watching participants from all over the world and listened to the announcer talking about, you know, riders from various places across the globe, Mm. Durango kept coming up. And Interestingly, Durango had nine athletes at the World Championships this past year, nine from a town of 18,000. And so I went back that evening and I started scrolling through the results of all of the events that had taken place that day. And Durango had the most riders competing than any other town in any other country in the world. And so we have a unique thing going on here in Durango from, from in the United States with the type of cyclists we have and the culture. And that shows its and, and manifests itself on a global stage when you go to high caliber events. We have just about a minute, um, but this is not just a race. Like there are all kinds of events going on uh, with this on Memorial Day weekend, correct? Absolutely. So we'll do our traditional Durango to Silverton event, but this year we've added a U-Ray to Silverton ride, which goes over Red Mountain Pass. We will do other mountain bike-related cycling activities and gravel-related activities over the weekend. We also have an exhibit starting at our at the Center for Southwest Studies, which is 50 years of the Iron Horse and our cycling culture here in Durango. So, you know, you only turn 50 once, as they say, <laughs> golden anniversary. And so we are we are planning to celebrate all of next week and, and through the weekend to thank our community and everyone that's been involved with this through the years. That list is so long, we can never capture everyone. But without the support of the community at large, this, this still wouldn't be happening 50 years later. Gage, thank you so much for your time. Are you writing this year? I am not you writing. You are not. Okay. Uh, well, I was going to say good luck, but I, I withdraw. Uh, thanks, Gage. I appreciate it. I think I still it. need some luck. Okay, good. You. I'll send it your way. Gage Sippy, director of the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, the historic bicycle versus train race takes place Memorial Day weekend in Durango. Meantime, more and more people who don't tend to ride bicycles are embracing the electric ones. The city of Denver recently launched an e-bike rebate program, and it's off to a sprightly start. The city hopes more e-bikes will mean fewer polluting vehicles on the city's streets. CPR's Nathaniel Miner takes us for a spin. It's mid-morning on a Saturday. Campus Cycles in South Denver is bumping. Owner Michael Bowers is showing off an olive green e-bike to customers. So that's going to be a seven-speed bicycle. Um, It's going to have the motor in the rear wheel, so a hub-based motor. Um, And the batteries, you can see, sits there on the rack. Nice. And how how do we charge the batteries? It's going to plug straight into the wall. Victor Dokolevsky and his fiancée are looking for an e-bike to commute to school and run errands around the city. We step outside for a test ride. Victor on the e-bike and me on my run-of-the-mill road bike. We fight our way through some Saturday morning soccer traffic. And then Victor takes off. All right, I am on my acoustic bike, my regular bike. And Victor is 20 feet up in front of me. And I cannot keep up with him. 
The bike's motor helps Victor pedal up to 20 miles an hour without breaking a sweat. I catch up to him at the end of the block. I, I feel like I'm working a lot harder than you are. Yeah, I'm not tired at all at this point, so I have tried to ride a bike in Colorado. I'm not originally from Colorado, and like the elevation gets to me. I can maybe do a mile, and then I'm, then I'm getting winded. Shop owner Michael Bowers says e-bike customers tend to be more like Victor and less like Lycra-wearing cyclists. We're getting some first-time cyclists. We're also getting customers that put their bikes away a long, long time ago, older folks that are realizing that they actually can get back out and ride a bike and enjoy it again. Bowers says the city of Denver's new rebates are bringing even more people through the door. Victor's income was low enough that he qualified for an extra rebate. Later that day, he bought a $1,400 e-bike and only had to pay $320 out of pocket. He and his fiancée want to use this e-bike as their primary mode of transportation. Ultimately, they want to sell one of their cars. We just wanted to have a bike so we can get around and just not always go in the car. And to lower our carbon footprint, like I said, that's something we both care about. It turns out that a lot of Denverites have similar ideas. The city has accepted more than 3,000 applications for e-bike rebates since announcing them last month. The rebates range from $400 to $1,700 and are among the most generous in the country. They're paid for by a new climate tax voters approved in 2020. We knew that people would find out about it eventually, but I I definitely didn't think people would hear about it as quickly as they did. Grace Rink is the chief climate officer for the city. So it was really exciting to see so much coverage and so much, so much chatter on social media. It's really been incredible. All that chatter has resulted in about 150 e-bike sales so far. And Rink expects that number to rise in the coming weeks as more people like Victor get out for test rides. She says the city will gather data and estimate how much new e-bike owners reduce their driving. And so there will be a greenhouse gas emissions reduction from this program. Now, will it solve climate change by itself? No. But the way we're going to solve the climate crisis that we're in now is one program after another after another that chips away at all of the different sources of greenhouse gas emissions in our community. Stephanie Vale of Denver and her husband have owned two e-bikes for more than a year. They now just have one car and use their e-bikes for commuting, errands, and even going out downtown. Comes with a little extra planning (laughs) and extra effort, Um, but I think that the times in the summer when we have that smog set in in Denver is a really good reminder of like we we have to make these changes in our own environments to be able to have a greater impact and you know hopefully other people learn and see that it's not that hard. The city has paused rebate applications for now, but Ring says they'll likely open up again in July. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Finally today, Denver singer-songwriter Julie Davis is a fixture on the Colorado music scene, working over the years with such notable artists as Nathaniel Rateliff and Gregory Allen Isakoff. Since 2005, she has made music with her solo project, Blue Book. Driven by her arresting vocals, upright bass, and live percussion loops, Davis's sound is sparse, sometimes haunting, as you can hear in this holiday tribute to Judy Garland on our show in 2019. Just say you'll stay till after the holidays 
Julie Davis revamped her Blue Book project, now a full quartet, and released a new album. For the title track, Davis conjures the spirit of Judy Garland once again with a dramatic take on optimistic voices, a peppy, almost silly song featured in 1939's Wizard of Oz. Oh my goodness, her voice is like being carried away by the ocean. That's Blue Book, the solo project turned four-piece band featuring Denver's Julie Davis. The new album, Optimistic Voices, is out now. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these optimistic voices. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.